Welcome to Trial Tested, a podcast by the American College of Trial Lawyers, an enlightening discussion about life and law created to elevate and inspire trial attorneys. My name is Amy Gunn, and I will be your host for today's episode. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Trial Tested. We're actually in part two of our discussion with Bob Trout, Bill Jeffries, and Josh Treem. Hello, gentlemen. Hello, Hello, Amy. Thanks for having us back. It's a pleasure. Bob, would you mind getting us started and just give us a background? Sure. Thanks, Amy. So here's the timeline. In January of 2019, Josh gets a subject letter. In the letter, it didn't explain why he was a subject. I called up. What is this about? They refused to give me any information. I mean, we knew that it was related to his representation of Kenny Ravenel, and that's all we knew. In June of 2019, his law firm was raided. And he simultaneously received a target letter. Oh. The law firm challenged the filter team process and protocols that were set forth in the search warrant, and successfully so. Fellow of the American College of Trial Lawyers, James Ulwick in Baltimore, appeared in the Fourth Circuit after being denied relief in the district court. And the Fourth Circuit agreed with him that the filter protocols were fundamentally flawed and sent it back for a special master. And that was in the fall of 2019. Kenny Ravenel, by the way, had been indicted in September of 2019. The so-called conspiracy ended in 2014. There was no reference to anything involving Josh, and Josh had not been involved in anything before 2016. So we're thinking, okay, they have figured out there's no further follow-up regarding, Josh, this is just going to go away. They're going to get the documents through the uh, special master process, and we still don't know anything about the search warrant affidavit or the probable cause that caused them to search the law firm. 2020, you recall, we have a pandemic starting. So Ravenel was supposed to go to trial in April. COVID was going to get in the way of that. But in the meantime, in a status conference, they made reference to the possibility of a superseding indictment. And that got our attention. So with that, we then made a submission to the U.S. attorney in Baltimore. Essentially, we felt that we knew all the facts. We couldn't understand what the basis of any criminal case could be. So we made that submission to the U.S. Attorney's Office in Baltimore. At this point, we knew that they had the letter from Judge Bennett, but we didn't know about the recording. And so that was in July. We made the submission. We asked for a reverse proffer. They told us that they were just there to listen. They were not going to give us a reverse proffer. We told them that we couldn't understand what were we missing. Josh Treem, with his stature and his prior experience as a federal prosecutor in Baltimore, had earned the right to be told in advance what he had done wrong. They declined to give us any information. We asked for advance notice if they were going to bring a case so that we could seek review at the Department of Justice. They told us that they were making no promises. And uh, in December 17, I was having a conversation with Josh about, you know, they obviously are going to be declining prosecution. There's no case here. Do we go to the outgoing U.S. attorney? This is after the election. Or do we wait for the new U.S. attorney in order to approach them and say, give us the declination letter we should have had long ago? 
And as we were having that very conversation, the grand jury was meeting and approving a superseding indictment in which Kenny Ravenel, Josh Treem, and Sean Gordon were all indicted on four counts of obstruction of justice, in addition to the three counts of drug-related counts that Kenny Ravenel had already been indicted on. And I learned about that from the Baltimore Sun the next day. Yeah. Wow. A major breach of normal courtesy and protocol. So right before the holidays in 2020, you get this terrible news and it's still during the pandemic. So what's the typical time frame for getting something like this resolved? So all of the judges in Maryland had recused themselves. They had recused Mm. themselves both because of the stature and the relationship that the judges had with Kenny Ravenel, who I believe was well-respected as a lawyer. Mm -hmm. And they recused themselves because of their great respect and that they have for Josh Treen. Josh had been the member of the Maryland Bar who was the court-appointed liaison to the CJA committee of the court for Baltimore. And so he was highly regarded and highly respected by the court. And so all of the judges recused themselves. And Judge Liam O'Grady from the Eastern District of Virginia was specially assigned to handle the case. And Judge O'Grady comes from the Eastern District of Virginia, which is sometimes referred to as the rocket docket because oh, I've heard historically that. they do a very good job of moving cases to trial quickly. You know, COVID was clearly going to get in the way of the normal schedule. But we met and we're having conversations about COVID. And so we were looking at a December trial date, December 2021. So it was a year, literally a year ago, we were in trial. This was two years ago that Josh was indicted. So that was the schedule. We had many pretrial motions. And one of the things that we needed to do because, as I say, there was this so-called statutory safe harbor that says that the obstruction of justice statutes don't apply at all to lawyers who are in good faith lawfully representing their clients. So we wanted to have an expert witness. We believe that case law is very clear that we were entitled to have an expert witness who could explain to a jury just what does a criminal defense lawyer do? because we obviously had a concern that maybe some jurors might have the point of view that criminal defense lawyers are representing guilty people. They're getting in the way of the prosecution, you know, winning cases. And we don't like that. So we were concerned about that attitude that might exist among the public. And so we wanted to get not just an expert, but a really good expert And so it turns out I was having a conversation with a friend of mine who is the law partner of the current president of the American College. And Jan Little, known to many in the college, said, oh, you've got to use Bill Jeffress as your expert. Both she and her partner, John Kecker, used Bill in another trial a number of years before. And I've known Bill forever. And I had already had Bill in mind to call, but this was just a reminder I needed to call Bill. And so Bill should tell you what he told me when we had that first call. Well, that was my next question. Bill, how did you feel about that call? Well, I'll tell you, as I recall, the first time I heard from Bob, he briefly told me what the case was about, but promised to send me the indictment. So the first and only document I read was the indictment. 
which has 48 paragraphs describing Josh's meeting with Bird back on September 9th and 10th of 2017. Not in a single paragraph is anything alleged that was improper in any way. And it became clear to me after reading the entire indictment that Josh was a lawyer being prosecuted for doing his job. So I told Bob I'd be happy to be an expert. <laughs> and that's all I had at the time was simply the indictment. But just reading the indictment sort of made my blood boil. So what turns out that obstruction of justice is one of the few things I actually know something about. About 40 years ago, I had just finished trying an obstruction case was in my office reading the, we used to have an advance sheet called the Criminal Law Reporter, which uh, described a statute that Congress had just passed called the Victim Witness Protection Act that completely revised the obstruction of justice statutes. And I started reading that statute and I mean, my jaw dropped. It used to be that obstruction of justice required corrupt conduct, corrupt intent. Congress replaced that in 1982 with a statute, 18 U.S.C. section 1512, which punished not corrupt conduct, but seeking to influence testimony of a witness by various means, bribery, threats, and something called, quote unquote, misleading conduct, defined as a violation of the securities laws, that is, making a false statement or a statement that omits to state a material fact and becomes misleading. It's very clear to me that this puts uh, defense lawyers unfairly at risk. You know, let's face it, that's what we do half the time in witness interviews is seek to influence testimony, not to get somebody to lie or not to get somebody to do anything improper, but that's the purpose of witness <laughs> Now, every defense lawyer is subject to being prosecuted for misleading conduct toward a witness in a witness interview. Well, I was upset about that, and I wrote an article. By the way, there were two other major glaring problems with the statute that Congress had passed, and I wrote an article talking about these problems which is published in the American Criminal Law Review. And uh, about six months later, I get a call from the staff at the House Judiciary Committee who are working on a fix. Long and short of it, they did pass, I think in 1985 maybe, a new provision that says, as Bob has pointed out earlier, this chapter does not punish the providing of lawful bona fide legal representation services. This chapter, meaning the obstruction of justice laws are inapplicable to a lawyer's conduct providing lawful bona fide legal services. And part of what I propose to testify about in my expert report, and by the way, the judge excluded my testimony as well as any other expert, but what I was proposing to testify was that the statute was applicable to the conduct of Josh that was alleged in the indictment. Was there a way to ask the judge to look at the statute and say, as a matter of law, this is not a prosecution that should go forward? There is a way, you know, we made these arguments repeatedly, including yeah. the pre-trial motions, and the judge denied our motions. Okay. So, and then what was the reasoning behind precluding expert testimony? What had happened is, is that the government initially had said that they didn't intend to present any expert testimony. And then I think as they thought more about it, they decided they were going to do that. And so when we were proposing experts, they also proposed their own experts. And we felt as we looked at their expert opinion, it was the legal equivalent of junk science. And so we moved to exclude their experts. And so when we were scheduled to have a hearing on our motion to exclude their experts, they made no motion with respect to our experts. Mm. 
And as I say, the case law is very clear that these defendants had the right to put on an expert witness to testify about what defense lawyers do, what they're supposed to do, what they can do in representing their client. And in order to address the intent requirement in the obstruction statutes, Bill was the only expert we were going to call. And so we get to the hearing and the judge says, even though the government had made no motion to include any of our expert, the judge says, I'm not going to let any expert testify. So that's how that happened. Another thing that I noticed is that all three of Gordon and Ravenel and Treem were all tried together, right? That's right. We had filed a severance motion. You know, the case against Kenny Ravenel, all of the facts occurred between 2009 and 2014. Josh wasn't even retained until 2016. And there was just no overlap in terms of the nature of the allegations. And we believe then and continue to believe this was a complete and obvious misjoinder of counts and defendants. And so we filed a severance motion. And I was thinking, well, judges typically do not grant severance motions. And Bill Jeffress, as we were talking about it, I think said, you know, you're going to lose that motion. And I'm thinking, no, we're not going to lose that motion. This is the one severance motion that is so obviously meritorious. There's just no way you can deny it. Well, it was denied. (laughs) I love the optimism. I love the optimism. Right. And then we get to shortly before trial and we got their witness list and we saw that there was one witness on their witness list, Richard Bird, who related to Josh Trim. And there were 21 other witnesses on the witness list that were just about the case against Kenny Ravenel and had nothing to do with Josh Treen. And so we actually renewed our motion, you know, on the eve of trial, and that too was denied. Mm. I will say, I will add, I think the way the case ended up being tried, where essentially for a substantial part of the case, both we on behalf of Josh Treem and the lawyers for Sean Gordon were silent. And I think our best guess, because we thought we had a really good jury, a very attentive and conscientious jury, that we probably may have been just as well off not getting the severance. I share that sentiment. I think it worked out because Erb was the only witness that had anything to do with the obstruction case. That was true of Kenny and Sean as well. And he added nothing, really. And they had the video and they had the letter and they had the declaration. And that was the heart of the case. In theory, they could have tried the obstruction case without calling Richard Byrd as witness because it was all in the videotape. They could Mm -hmm. have had the agents authenticate the videotape and everything they had to say about their obstruction case They did not need Richard Byrd. As it turns out, he was a god-awful witness, and I think we benefited by that. Now, Josh, you testified. Yes. Can you explain that decision? After I convinced Mr. Trout that since he'd already been in the investigative part of this case, he was going to have to stay on in the trial. (laughs) And my partner, Dan, actually, as Bob said earlier, came out of retirement up in New Hampshire to come down. And he said I didn't have a choice and he was going to represent me. And there's nothing I could say to dissuade him. 
So I think it was somewhat implicit to all of us, to the three of us initially, that the big question was, how do we educate the jury, who's probably gotten their view of defense lawyers from watching Law and Order and all the spinoffs for the past dozens of years? Right. And the thought wasn't even a debate once the judge said he wasn't going to permit any expert testimony. But we had to get something into the record, not only about what defense attorneys do, but how they do it and why they are compelled to do it. This is all about the Fourth, Fifth, and Sixth Amendments to the Constitution. And we're charged with having to provide effective assistance to our clients. So how do we do that without Bill testifying? And so one way to do it was to have me, because this is what I've been doing for 50 years, describe to the jury what I do. What helped immensely was, in addition to my testimony, as I think Bob mentioned earlier, there were character witnesses, including for Sean, the federal public defender from Maryland, Greg Bernstein, Paul Beckman, you know, they all in one way or another provided the answers to the question of, you know, what do you do and how do you do it and why to the jury. And I think it was very effective because it applied to the three of us. And I think the jury understood it. The testimony also was part of the consideration that the government couldn't prove why I would have done what they claim I did. They had no answer to the why. I mean, why at the end of a career doing this and, you know, whatever I've accomplished, generally considered fairly good stuff, that why would I do this all of a sudden, something that would get me locked up at 75 years old? So why would I do it? They couldn't answer it. They couldn't answer it for me. They couldn't answer it for Ken. They couldn't answer it for Sean. And the only way the jury would get that information would be from me. So, Amy, let me just add to that. And this, again, this would relate to why you know, in the absence of Bill Jeffers being able to speak to these issues, we needed somebody that could. The theory of obstruction that was laid out in the indictment for what they described as a false statement to the federal judge in the letter that Josh wrote, that was one of the obstruction counts. And the theory for that and for the affidavit, the so-called false affidavit, the affidavit being false because it reported that 53 affirmative exculpatory statements had been read in the firm, whereas in fact only 49 had been read. The theory was that these documents were created to provide false, I'm quoting now from the indictment, to provide false evidence of a prior consistent statement by Gordon or Treem in the event either one were to be questioned as part of an investigation being conducted by the U.S. Department of Justice of Ravenel or called to testify in official proceedings, including before the grand jury investigating Ravenel or of a trial of Ravenel if he were indicted by a federal grand jury. So what we have here is the government's theory of, well, Josh Treem created this in order to create a false record if he were to testify in a grand jury that was investigating his client and were to give false testimony in that grand jury. Or if he, the lawyer for Kenny Ravenel, were to testify at Ravenel's trial. And, you know, I read this and it sounded beyond goofy. So Josh Clean needed to say, I've been doing this forever. I've never heard of a lawyer appearing as a witness in a grand jury that was investigating his client. That's one. Mm -hmm. And two, there is an ethical problem with a lawyer at trial taking the witness stand in the trial in which they're serving as a lawyer. Can't do it. 
Right. So there were, as I say, it was beyond Goofy, the obstruction theory. But Goofy, as it sounds, it found its way into an indictment. And it seemed to us Josh Treem needed to blow it out of the water or we needed to have somebody who could basically educate the jury about that. If Phil was excluded as an expert, I totally understand well, we've got Josh. He's an expert, too, in his own right. So he's allowed to testify and tell his story. And then you mentioned character witnesses. So was that also another way to help the jury understand what we do and particularly what Josh has done his whole career? Yeah, it was. And we had five character witnesses. I have a friend who, you know, when a judge basically says, uh, well, how many character witnesses do you want? The answer is until I get to reasonable doubt. There you go. There you go. However many it takes. Yeah, however many it takes to get to reasonable doubt. But we have five superb character witnesses, including one who was a senior circuit court judge in Baltimore who has known Josh since she was in AUSA with Josh. And she said, because I asked her, can you testify as a judge? Is it proper for you to testify? And she said, I will resign from the bench. I need to, to testify for Josh. Oh, my goodness. As it happened, we gave her a subpoena, which was all she needed. Yeah, they were powerful for all three defendants. I mean, Kenny had a couple of uh, sitting judges and one judge who sat on the Fourth Circuit, and another judge who was sat on the Maryland court. Was well, they were no longer federal judges. No, they I mean, weren't I, then. Yeah, they had retired, but they testified. And as I said before, Sean had the federal public defender in Maryland testify as a character witness. And when asked, well, what does a federal public defender do? And his response was, we push back on the mm. government. I mentioned that in my testimony, you know, as Mr. Wyda has said, that's what we do. This is how we do it. And Paul Beckman, you know, who's a former regent of the college, he had been the regent when Kenny was inducted. And so he went through the entire process for what it takes to become a fellow of the American College of Trial Lawyers. And it sounds like without the government being able to explain why anyone would do this in the face of that powerful evidence from the character witnesses and Josh from yourself, tell us how it turned out. Well, Bob will correct me if I've got the sequence a little screwed up, but the jury got the case at the end of the day before Christmas weekend holiday. They got the case at about two o'clock and after about two hours, well, less than two hours, there was a question. And the question was, where's Warwick? So that requires a little background. In all of the discovery that we were given and all the witness information that we were given, we were never told what was going on here. In other words, did Bird go in the first day with the idea that they had coached him to give the exculpatory statement? Did he go in the first day and the government was surprised that he gave the exculpatory statement? What did the government say to him? And we did get something that said they met with him after the first day, including Warwick, the AUSA. But we got nothing that said what they said to him. We didn't know whether they'd said, Bird, you forgot your lines. You were supposed to say this. Did they say, what the hell were you saying? We didn't know what they said to him, but obviously he changed his story. Warwick was actually present in every instance, at every interview. He was present in the room when he made the shakedown call in January 2018. We had no idea what that was all about. 
So we subpoenaed the agents who were there and we subpoenaed Warwick. The government insisted that we go through the process that allowed the government essentially to block their testimony. And we never got any decision from them with respect to the agents. With respect to Warwick, they said, we're not going to allow him to testify because it's attorney work product. So we're not going to allow him to testify. We asked the court to compel Warwick to testify, and the judge refused to do so, declaring it to be a sideshow. The only agent they put on to testify was an agent who hadn't been involved in the case and had only joined the team six months before trial, well after the indictment. He had nothing to do with the investigation to speak of. But they had put him on as the agent to put documents into evidence over our objection. So there we were. We didn't know what a lot of these facts were. Quite frankly, I spent a lot of time in my closing with the aid of a PowerPoint I'm careful in using PowerPoint, but when I want the jury to take a note back to the jury room, I will give them a PowerPoint, something like a question or something that I want them to write down. And so I had 13 or 15 different questions that they should be asking themselves and that Warwick would know the answer to. Where was Warwick? We had asked for a missing witness instruction, and the judge had refused to give us that. But I at least was able to talk about the government's failure to produce Warwick to answer these questions, knowing that they couldn't stand up and say, well, they could have subpoenaed him, which is a response that might otherwise have been available. So I spent a fair amount of time in my closing talking about all the questions that they should have that Warwick could have answered, that the government could have answered for them if they had produced Warwick. And two hours later, after the jury got the case, the question came back, why didn't Warwick testify? <laughs> and there was a little bit of a, an amusing, you know, we said, well, the truthful answer, Judge, to give them is that the government blocked them. <laughs> And the judge said, yeah, but if I tell him that, I'll have to then add that I approved the government. The, mm -hmm. And we said, well, we don't want you to say that. Right. So we went around Robin Hood's barn and we ended up that there is no evidence as to why he was not called. And that's the way that ended up. OK. But we took it as a good sign that that was their first question. I yeah. imagine. Well, yeah, because, you know, the indictment had the obstruction counts, the last four counts. So clearly they'd gone to that immediately. And then they came back on the following Monday. They all came back on Monday. And then at four o'clock, they said that they were going to adjourn for the day and they would come back the next day. And they showed up at nine and at 930, they had a verdict. And I think what happened is, is that they felt they wanted to sleep on it because they did come back with a guilty verdict on one count against Kenny Ravenel. One of the seven counts in which he was indicted, the others were all not guilty as to everybody else, including Ken. You know, they had kind of arrived at a decision Monday afternoon and decided they wanted to sleep on it. And so within a half an hour of arriving on Tuesday, they came back with their verdict. Yeah, because there was no communication from the jury other than that first question on the first day of deliberations. There was no other notes and no other questions. Yeah, I can imagine just the fear of that long weekend. That is really terrifying. So something you else get, Andy, that yes. I wanted to point out about the weakness of this case. I mean, it was unbelievable that basically Josh was prosecuted for what the government called a false affidavit. 
This was a declaration that was written, signed, and put in Josh's drawer and never done anything with it. He was indicted for supposedly false statements in a letter to a judge, didn't ask the judge to do anything. It was not in any kind of proceeding. The government had no evidence, not a witness, not a tape recording, not notes, no nothing, that Josh ever intended to do anything improper, either with the affidavit or with the letter. The entire case was therefore built on speculation that, well, why would he have drafted this if he didn't intend to mislead somebody with it, okay? Now, if the affidavit had been used in court without revealing that, oh, and by the way, on the second day, he took all of us back, you know, that'd be one thing. Sure. Um, but that was completely based on speculation, not on evidence. I mean, the way this would normally work is, let's say Josh is the lawyer at trial and Bird takes the witness stand and gives an incriminating version about Kenny Ramnick. And if Josh had said, okay, do you recall that we met on September the 9th? And if he's truthfully said yes. And on September the 9th, you recall we went through a two-page statement, right? And this is the two-page statement that we went through, right? Yes. If Bird had said, yes, that's the two-page statement. And if he said, and you read through it, all of those, and each time you affirmed it was true, these exculpatory statements. And Bird said, absolutely, I did that because that would be the truth. If all of that had happened, Sean Gordon would never have testified because Byrd had admitted mm -hmm. that he had given inconsistent statements. And the Sean affidavit would never have been admitted into evidence at all. So let's say he says, no, I never said that or no, I never did that. Then you would call Sean Gordon and Sean Gordon would relate exactly what happened. The affidavit would never come into evidence. He would simply say, I was there. This is what he did. He affirmed each one to be true. And essentially, he would then provide the evidence that Byrd should have provided on cross, but he would impeach him through this independent evidence. But the affidavit would never come in. But suppose on cross-examination of Gordon, the prosecutor had said, did you ever make a note of this? He could then say, yes, I did. Here's the affidavit that I prepared or signed three days later. Yes, I made a record of that. You certainly don't want him to say, you know, it was three years ago. I never made a record of it. I'm testifying completely off of memory. You don't want to be in that situation, which is why you want a record. As it happens, the document would be producible under what's referred to as reverse jinx when Sean Gordon takes the witness stand, that Josh would be obliged to turn that document over. And he would not want to disclose in this document areas of additional cross-examination. If the prosecutor, having been advised by Byrd about what happened on the 10th, had said, now, on the 10th, isn't it true that Byrd made all these incriminating statements? Sean Gordon would have said and would have said truthfully, testified truthfully, yes, he did. And the fact that he didn't put it in his affidavit or his declaration is really beside the point. He was under no obligation to do that. His obligation is to tell the truth, and he would have done that. So it was so tentative, this notion that this, quote, false affidavit and false letter would have resulted in anything under any circumstances. Right. The only thing the government had to argue was that he intended to use this letter and the affidavit in a way that would be false, that would yeah. be obstruction mm -hmm. of justice. He wasn't going to admit that Byrd changed his testimony the second day, which, of course, is ridiculous. Right. Right. So, Josh, how did you feel upon hearing the verdict? 
<laughs> That's a softball, um, in case you're wondering. <laughs> just another day at the office. No, obviously, you know, it's kind of overjoyed, but it was tinged with some sadness because Ken, I had hired Ken out of the state's attorney's office in Baltimore to come join my firm. And he was a star from day one. He stayed with us for about 10 years and then took his practice, which, I mean, they were pounding down his door to hire him. He was the guy, certainly in the uh, central Maryland, Baltimore County, Baltimore City. If you were in big trouble, you wanted Ken Ravenel to represent you. Then he left and went to the Murphy firm and he continued. He took over much of the criminal practice there. And he'd been convicted for something that we didn't think the government had proven the case against Mm -hmm. him. It's actually now on appeal. Um, But so it was tinged and he had his whole family there. They had come up from South Carolina to sit through this and there were representatives there every day and I got to meet them. But yeah, I was overjoyed, obviously. It's hard for me to remember exactly whether I was thinking, well, you know, what took him so long, although it wasn't very long at all. But I mean, the effects are, they still linger. And, uh, you know, Bill just asked, you know, how could they do this? There's been really no answer to that, and I don't expect there ever to be one because there really isn't an explanation for why they would have done this. One other thing Bob ought to explain, you know, we talked about four missing questions that Bird forgot to read during the interview, yeah. how that played out at trial. Well, what happened as soon as we got the evidence and we started going through it, because they made a big deal out of the fact that he had falsely represented that Bird had read all 53, whereas, in fact, he had left out four. You know, it's only 49. And, you know, we're kind of scratching our heads and we eventually get the discovery. So we're looking at the videotape and we're saying, holy cow, you got to be kidding me. There's no way he would have known because they gave him the pieces of paper across the table and couldn't see that he'd skipped four. So at trial, I asked him whether he knew that he'd skipped four, and of course he didn't. But what had happened before that was, you know, I had made a big deal out of this in my opening statement. So the prosecutor, he knows that this is an issue, and he decides he's going to try to fix it with Bird. Now, the prosecutor has seized in the search warrant Josh's notes. There are a whole bunch of notes, and the prosecutor has clearly spent a lot of time going through the notes. And there's nothing at all improper revealed in any of the notes. But the prosecutor basically, in his questioning of Bird, what he would do is he would play the videotape and then he would say, "Okay, well, when you said that, what were you thinking or what did you mean? Or, you know, he would at various points in time, he would interrupt the playing of the tape. So he then gets to this point while watching Bird read the statements. And he says, the prosecutor, in a leading question, says, and just to be clear, Mr. Bird, was Mr. Treem writing down the numbers that you were answering to? Now, anyone looking at the notes would see that didn't happen. There were no numbers on the notes that would correspond to any of the statements, the questions. And, of course, predictably, Bird agreed. And then the prosecutor, basically, as if to drive home the point that he agreed, he said, yes, I'm just looking at the notes right now. It essentially affirmed you got that answer right. And so I'm sitting there and I can't believe my ears. He is getting this witness to give false testimony, which he knows is false. Cannot believe it. 
And then when the agent takes the witness stand, I cross-examine the agent about, did he remember he was in court when this testimony, you know, and he had read the notes and he knew the notes didn't contain that. Did you think to say something to the prosecutor? You know, and so he fumbled around on that. But we went through each individual page with the agent to point out that there were no numbers in the notes. And that's what I led with in my closing argument was, you know, kind of went through this whole scenario again and then basically said, you know, among the allegations that the government has made in this case is the charge that Joshua Treem committed a crime when he prepared and approved language in an affidavit that said that Mr. Byrd approved all 53 of the items on the combined notes rather than the 49 that he actually read and approved. And then I kind of went through all of that. And I said, Josh Treem, a distinguished lawyer with an unblemished record and a 50-year career with a reputation of outstanding integrity, has been accused of a crime that he was not candid with Mm. the tribunal. Ladies and gentlemen, you are the tribunal. So imagine my dismay when I heard the prosecutor try to elicit testimony in evidence that is unquestionably false. And that was basically how I opened my closing argument, because to this day, I am dismayed that would happen. Well, and it appears the jury agreed with you. And just looking at it from the outside as I am, I am dismayed from the whole story, starting with the allegations in the indictment, all the way through the actions of the prosecutors at trial. So what... And this is not my area, as I said before, but just as a citizen worried about government overreach, will things change? Was there any evidence that you could tell that the government believed that they overreached? What are some lessons that you can give us or some notion that this won't happen again? Well, there is a new U.S. attorney in Maryland. You know, there has been some kind of candid back and forth, I believe, with him. And I believe that he understands the level of upset within the criminal defense bar. But candidly, there is a federal judge who said nothing to see here. We don't think that's right. And quite frankly, we are seizing every opportunity we can to showcase this. You know, Josh, to his credit, might have said to me, you know, I'm not interested in anybody knowing that I've been indicted for a crime that doesn't already know it. Let's not say anything more about this to anybody. If they know about it, they know about it, but let's not publicize it to more people that I, Josh Treem, was indicted for a crime. That's not where he's coming from. He very much wants the word to go out This is what is possible, and we can't let it happen. And the way it's not going to happen is if the government is shamed into not letting it happen again. And so we seize any opportunity to make this point, which is one of the reasons why we so very much appreciate the opportunity to speak to this today. During the trial, Jim Wida would send out emails to the Criminal Justice Act felony panel. And at one point, it's towards the end of the trial, he sent out an email which essentially said that the government's view of the defense bar, at least in the District of Maryland, is that we are obstructionists, we are criminals. And that actually carried over at the time of Ken's sentencing when uh, Mr. Wise reminded in response to a judge's comments that he wasn't there to say whether or not Mr. Ravenel represents an outlier in Maryland in terms Mm -hmm. of his conduct. 
he wasn't prepared to say this was like a one-off. And in fact, you know, the inference was just the opposite. And at one point, though, just to add this little footnote to the judge's activities in the case, at one point, the judge made a comment with respect to the strength of the case that if the jury had come back and had convicted Sean and me, which he thought they should have done because his view was that the evidence was overwhelming against us, that uh, he would not have taken that verdict, the guilty verdict, away from the jury. It was a totally gratuitous remark, but that was the judge we were in front of for the three weeks. So Byrd got a 26-year sentence within a couple of months months, of the verdict. He was out. Out entirely? Yeah. So the federal judge that it was originally assigned to, Judge Bennett, who Josh had written the letter to, the Rule 35 motion for reduction of sentence that had been pending for Judge Bennett was actually referred over to Judge O'Grady, who was the judge in the case in trial for decision. And he, presumably at the recommendation of the government, you know, entered an order that resulted in his release from federal custody. And so as a result, counting the time served from the time of his arrest in 2014, he served no more time than what the government had recommended for the sentence for Kenny Redwell. So Byrd had 26 years yep. and it didn't initially didn't have any cooperation. Right. And then we don't know. We probably never know exactly how the cooperation started or from who's asking. But he wears magic glasses in two meetings, leaves a voicemail. Then it's terminated. And what we find out is his 26-year sentence is reduced to, what, less than seven? Well, no, it's, I guess it's probably a little less than eight. Yeah. Okay. So his 26-year sentence for those three acts goes from 26 to eight. And in return, the government prosecutes lawyers, investigators, essential part of the criminal justice system unsuccessfully. And we're still struggling to figure out whether the government has actually learned anything, right? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Another thing, Amy, I'd just like to comment on your question about things going to change. Back in the 1990s, there were a series of prosecutions by the Justice Department of defense lawyers in criminal cases, occasionally based on plea bargain testimony from their former clients. I testified as an expert witness in one of them for John Kecker. I tried two others. By the way, those two lawyers were acquitted, but the Justice Department actually made some changes in their policy, requiring U.S. attorneys to get approval from Maine Justice before they brought certain types of cases against defense lawyers. But I haven't seen, aside from Josh's case, I haven't seen that happening lately the way it did in the 90s. You know, in some respects, the government through this prosecution has given people who are locked up and are defendants a get-out-of-jail card. And that is something that I know, because from talking to people in Maryland, at least, that is very troubling, because it really does create a conflict even between the attorney and his own client. Am I trusting this guy not to give me up? And if there's a real cultural divide between defense attorneys and the assistant U.S. attorneys in Maryland, at least, and I think the message needs to get out about the danger that this prosecution creates Well, and I so appreciate your willingness to talk to us today about these issues because they can, and Josh, you in particular, I wholeheartedly agree with the notion that you would consider 
just putting this chapter behind you, closing that book and moving on. But the importance, and it really just goes to, I think, your commitment and dedication to this practice for your entire professional career, the importance of sounding the alarm, so to speak, about something like this. Because if you don't, it likely would continue to happen. The government feels emboldened. Sure, they lost. But, you know, if no one's really speaking about it, there's no real consequence to that. So what would you like us to take away? And I know you've mentioned some things, but are there some takeaways, some things that you want the fellows, the folks that are listening to this podcast to do, to believe, to know? Well, that's a good question. Um, first, let me just say a couple of things. It's totally gratuitous. But Mr. Trout and Mr. Goldstein sacrificed a lot along with me. And I wouldn't be sitting here today talking to you, but for their work, which was just masterful. But to your question, I'm not sure I have an answer to that, what I want the college to do. I think maybe in some respects, the people who need to be educated are, in some respects, are the U.S. attorneys. Yes. I mean, this is what can go on here. And, you know, I have no idea what oversight exists in the Northern District of California. There's a policy memo now in Maryland, but it's just a memo. It has no legal force or effect. All it sets up is a kind of procedure But by doing that, it memorializes and codifies the possibility that the attorney-client privilege and the work product privilege is worth no more than the deal struck between the government and the defendant. And that's dangerous. And I don't know whether there's some lobbying at the Department of Justice level that the college can do, but that's where it's got to go. By the way, in the Fourth Circuit opinion on the search warrant issues and the taint issues, the Fourth Circuit just talks about the historical importance of the attorney-client privilege and the work product privileges. Maybe that's gotten lost somehow. And maybe that's where the college could put some effort as to kind of dealing with that, because both got trampled on here. I've been at another conference, and it was very interesting. It included judges who were appalled. It included Rod Rosenstein, the former U.S. attorney in Baltimore, who was the deputy attorney general who basically dealt out of having to address this case. My belief is that Rod would have been appalled as well. Paul Fishman was the former U.S. attorney in New Jersey, and he was given the role of offering up the government's perspective on this. I think Paul, in that role, expressed dismay, and I don't know whether outrage was the right word, but he certainly expressed some dismay and said this should never have happened. What he did say is, look, if you have actual evidence that a lawyer is going to offer a bribe in this sort of a meeting, obviously that's a problem. Lawyers can't do that. That is obstruction of justice. That's a crime. But you need to have a predicate. You don't just kind of say, well, you know, maybe it's going to happen. Let's record it. Let's see what happens. No, you need to have pretty strong evidence as to what will happen before you go videotaping or recording such a defense lawyer interview. And if you're going to do it, You have a complete separate kind of filter team, if you will, of experienced prosecutors who have nothing to do with the investigating team or the prosecution team who are going to review it. And if nothing happens that's untoward, it just gets destroyed. It doesn't get used. The prosecution, the investigators never see it. 
And so these are the prophylactic ways that Mm -hmm. you can, on the one hand, you know, if you actually do have evidence that a lawyer is going to misbehave in such a otherwise confidential setting, you're not without procedures and remedies to deal with it. But you do have to do it in a way that is sensitive to the fact that it is a privileged, confidential work product setting. And that way there is protection for what ought to be protected. And if the lawyer does misbehave, then, okay, a judgment is made. Yes, he stepped over or she stepped over the line. This is something that needs to be investigated. Understood. Well, gentlemen, thank you so much for your time today. Bob Trout, Bill Jeffries, Josh Treem. It's a very important issue, and I really thank you for your time and sharing this experience with us. Thank you for doing this. Thank you, Amy. Thank you for listening to Trial Tested. Our next episode drops on Thursday, so please subscribe now and hear every inspiring episode.